Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Regenerative by Design podcast, where we will be getting to the root of health, climate, economics, and food. I am your host, Joni Kinwall Moore. I'm an RN, an ethnobotanist, and the founder of Snacktivist Foods. Join me on this journey as we explore the ideas, stories, and personalities behind the regenerative food system movement. Food is the connection between people and planet. In a world where pandemics, climate change, and war have made us feel so disconnected and vulnerable, regenerative agriculture has become a powerful force for positive transformation and hope. Here, regenerative thought leaders share how agriculture and food design can create a more resilient system. Okay. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. I'm Joni Kinwalmore. I'm your host. And today we have Ty Meyer joining us. And Ty has a really fantastic background. He works with one of the best um, conservation districts in the nation, um, Spokane Conservation District. If you're not familiar with the work that they do and you're interested in farming and leading edge Topics, I, I definitely urge you to get involved with what we have going on over there. We're very, very lucky, but welcome, Ty. Thank you. Great, great to be here. Yeah, I'm glad you could join us today. Yeah, so Ty and I have gotten to know one another through the work that's being done at um, the Farm Smart Project. Um, it is a really cool thing. It gets me really excited. If it gets me excited to do more than I'm normally doing in a week, you know, it's really cool. <laughs> and um, it's if Ty and I got to know each other on the way to an RFSI conference last fall. And Sarah and Anthony Carcero have been on the show as well. So Ty, this is kind of a fun thing because we can kind of talk about that conference and how we sat and talked each other's ear off on the airplane all the way to San Francisco. Right. Yeah, that was that was a great that was a great moment and opportunity fun. for us to get to know each other a little better and and talk regenerative ag. Absolutely. And how food and ag come together because quite frankly, food lives over here in one little vertical and farming lives over here in another vertical and then healthcare lives over here in another one and my personal mission in life is to bring those together and make sure that conversations about farming include food and include health all the time and the environment. So on that note, tell us tell us a little bit about you, Ty. Like your your background is interesting, and I think that people are wanting to know more these days about people who get involved in farming and agriculture, even if it's from policy standpoint. Like, what makes you tick? How did you grow up, and how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, thanks, Joni. Uh, so my background, I grew up uh, on a farm and cattle ranch in Colton, Washington. So down in Whitman County, Washington, in the heart of the Palouse, uh, a very traditional uh, agriculture landscape. Uh, the farm was uh, very much a conventional tillage type operation and uh, ran livestock uh, separately from the farm. So the two never really met each other. The livestock weren't really part of the farm. They were, they uh you know, were the recipient of hay off of this farm ground and things, but that was it. The two never mm-hmm. met each other, and and which uh, you know, as we progress through this today, we'll we'll find out is probably one of the key things we can do today to really move mm-hmm. into regenerative ag is integrating those two things. So we're learning a lot, right? Uh, yeah, and and so you know, our farm wasn't big enough for me to come back and and just take over and farm. So 
uh, really dove into the ag industry on the the backside of it to really help farmers uh, you know really adopt conservation practices and and uh, so I've been at the conservation district in Spokane uh, 19 years or going on 19 years right now and cool. my focus originally yeah was just on on helping farmers adopt direct seed and no-till farming systems so uh, really focusing on uh, preserving those natural resources out there uh, mitigating you know wind and water erosion on these farms really trying to build a healthy uh, soil ecosystem uh, that, that really mm -hmm. would transform the way we think about conservation ag and so right. that, that really right. has been my focus Joni across uh, you know the better part of my career with the conservation district and and it's evolved lately obviously I think we're talking yes, about some pretty new new topics and things that that we've gotten into that uh, I think uh, you know it, it's really a progressive look at at agriculture and where we think we need to go with it. Absolutely and I, I love that you mentioned that you grew up farming and that your farm was too small to really make a career out of it because this is something that um, I don't think is fully appreciated by people outside of agriculture. And, you know, as with my brand with Snacktivist, one of the things we're developing a tool and I, I did send it to you. It's like a farmer questionnaire. And one of the key things we want to track and discuss is um, where food's coming from and are farms being run by people who have to have an outside source of employment are they employed solely from farm work? Um, if they are doing another stream of income, what is it? So, you know, are they working remote? Do they have another full-time job? You know, that's something that we need to talk about because, you know, family-held farms are at risk of extinction, just like a lot of the key biodiversity markers we're looking at, whether that be insects or microorganisms in the soil birds and undulates, um, you know, this whole farm transformation that's happened over the last 80 years has also put a lot of pressure on family held farms. And it'd be fun for you to talk about that from a cultural lifestyle standpoint. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, I come from what I would consider to be a large scale production agriculture background. So, uh, you know, farms that that are, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred, two thousand acres, and then much bigger. And mm -hmm. so, you know, the average size of the, the farm in this region, uh, you know, where we consider the farms to be large scale production ag, I mean, the, the average size now is probably 4,000 acres on these farms, if not bigger. Okay. And so it, it truly mm -hmm. is large scale agriculture that we're dealing with. Uh, but I think the term, farm or farmers is, has really evolved over the last decade or so, right? We've got a tremendous amount of uh, small-scale farms as, as uh, people begin to go out and realize the value of, of our land and, and producing food, whether it's on a small-scale row crops, uh, market garden-type operations. I, I think that definition has evolved. Uh, you know, my background yeah, sure largely is, is, is in that large-scale ag, and so... I think mm -hmm. traditionally, these these are family farms. I mean, a lot of times we get lumped into uh, this big corporate farming system, and you know mm -hmm. the, these farms are corporations, uh, not because they're owned by big corporations, but because the IRS told them they needed to be. You know, and, and so they're still right. family farms, and they're mm -hmm. owned by families. Uh, 
that are probably three and four, if not five generations now on the farm. And mm-hmm. uh, some of the kids mm-hmm. out there on these farms that are growing up now are, are the next, you know, fourth and fifth generation on some of these places. So uh, there's right. a lot of tradition and history involved in the, in the system. So, uh, And that's a pivotal uh, you know, transition it, it, point right now. You know, I mean, most farmers are, according to the USDA, they're like around 60. So we've got a really huge opportunity right now with this passing of the baton to a new generation because I mean, Ty, you and I are kind of in the same age group and honestly, we're the generation that left the farm. I mean, it's more, it's, there's a huge gap and there's a lack of representation in family held farm farms right now for people that are in this like ages forties and early fifties. It's like the, (laughs) it's like this generation that grew up in the seventies and eighties I think a lot of us heard from our parents as I did and my uncles, they were like, why would you ever get involved in agriculture? Like you guys should move to the cities, go get a desk job, go get a job where you'll have healthcare insurance, you know, like that kind of a model. And that has radically transformed where we're at as like a, as a domestic farming economy now. I think it has. I, you know, there was a generation of farmers in, in large scale ag that, uh, struggled and and those struggles mm-hmm. led them to almost push their children off the farm because they didn't want to see yeah. their 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 families go through that struggle to continue that struggle mm-hmm. i think things have changed a little bit uh in that regard but but we have a long way to go right now in in big agriculture in in large scale ag to figure out how to make it exciting again how to get you know, interest mm-hmm. back in the farms from that younger generation to get them back on the farm. Yeah. What do you think that those passion points are? I mean, you talk to farmers all day long and you talk to different um, generations of farmers. And, you know, I sat at the the Direct Seed Association conference. I was only there for part of a day, one day, but I was sitting with the Wolfs and Frank and his son were there and his son's in college. And It was really interesting to have a conversation with someone who's in college right now and is of that legacy farming model. Um, What are those things that's going to make farming excited, exciting for them again? And I was talking to him about what we're doing at Snacktivist and he was like, wow, that's actually really interesting and really exciting and talking about farmer connected supply chains and how what my work could actually be told to consumers somewhere on the other side of the country, like sitting at a cafe in New York city or something like I could tell that was intriguing to him on a different level. Yeah. I think we have to figure out how to take, you know, I, I think it's, it's a little bit about taking control or taking back control of the the farm and the commodities. We've lost a little bit of our identity over the last 30 or 40 Mm -hmm. or 50 years. Uh, we've gotten to be such a a big agriculture model, a commodity-driven system, where in our region, where you know the bulk of our product is exported, it leaves the country, it doesn't see mm-hmm. the table in the U.S., and so uh, as soon as that crop is harvested, we lose the identity of it. That it, it's simply gone, and and it's simply a number on a piece of paper, and and hopefully a paycheck uh, down the line as as mm-hmm. you know markets change, but. You know, to me, Joni, this is about uh, making farming fun again. Uh, it's such a large capital-driven system today. It, it, it's a massive yes. operation 
a farmer has to be everything from a good bookkeeper to a good marketer to an agronomist to a mechanic to I, I mean they have to be everything in order to operate these farms and everything is at risk every year and mm-hmm. it's you know, very some high of risk. That a chance it's a lot of it stress is. It's a high it is it's a high stress system and operation and uh, you know i do think it's about making it fun again and and to me that's that is exactly where we've landed with regenerative ag uh regenerative mm-hmm. ag to me is about uh it isn't just about um you know regenerating our land and our soil but to me it, it it's a much bigger system of uh you know maybe taking a, a new look at the whole system itself the whole farm operation. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, there's a real creativity that's innate in regenerative agriculture. And, you know, when you talk to many of the big personalities that have driven this genesis in modern regenerative agriculture, you know, the Gabe Browns, the Ray Arcletas, the John Kemp's, um, they are really creative people. And, it's very obvious to me that this thinking outside the box is fun. Um, it is something that's bringing the fun back to agriculture because it's not like, hey, here's a set of rules that you have to follow and these control levels that have taken your identity and a lot of your culture and your kind of ownership of your system away from you. I feel like it's like putting the life back into it and it is definitely putting the fun back into it. And tell me what what store like what do you hear from your farmers that are like the most exciting points of that like why is that fun well i think you know it, to me it's about a little bit of a shift in mindset right on the farm i mean we're we're going from a system mm-hmm. that uh, really uh, we've been able to do a tremendous amount of things uh almost in lieu of nature right we we've we've got every every uh, fertilizer and chemics chemistry and things that we can we can really manage a crop uh, without a lot of help from mother nature outside of rain and and we figured mm-hmm. out how to do that and we do it very efficiently we do it well uh, to the point where um, you know it has uh, you know it, it makes a living for for most of these farmers out here uh, but I think you know that that frame of mind that that change in mindset once that occurs to uh, you get to a point where you start to realize that guys like John Kemp, Ray Archuleta, the folks you mentioned uh, are talking about a positive change to not only the soil but your farm operation and I I just think it's Mm -hmm. a you know once people have that that almost epiphany where they realize that wow I'm in control of a pretty amazing resource and yeah you know to go back to some basic understandings that maybe we've forgotten a little bit about like what is the true value of photosynthesis in a plant mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and how do we focus that i mean that that's a simple concept right we think but that drives our whole system in regenerative ag if we don't understand the basic yeah. principles of of how a plant operates then then it it it, it basically removes all understanding of carbon sequestration and 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 healthy soils so uh, and that yeah it's like the really magic behind it it is mm-hmm. it absolutely is yep it's yeah. the magic and there's something really magical about when you when you start to feel like you're part of a big system you know we're part of the ecology we're part of nature we're part of a living system that's so much bigger than us 
as like a little reductionistic bubble that has a lot of control and can do something super efficiently. And efficiency is important. That's how we feed the world is, you know, we do have to have efficiencies of scale, but it has to be balanced with this magical touch point that we are part of a bigger system. We're part of something that's bigger than us and it's all interconnected. And there's a magic to that that's very, I want to say intoxicating because that's to me one of the allure points of regenerative. People resonate on a very deep level, spiritually even with it, which is something that often we're not allowed to talk about in farming. We're not allowed to talk about in economics and we're not allowed to talk about it in science, but there is a real spiritual resonation point there that is undeniable. Yeah, I think you're you're absolutely right. I think when you start looking at the principles of regenerative ag, of, of what it really means and, and talk about reintegrating animals onto the you know onto the farmscape the landscape out here to really address uh you know healthy soils and and i mean it's putting that mobile compost machine out there and moving around for you and working and, and yeah. things get exciting right it, it it's all about life it's all about uh, building a system that that is so dynamic that it can change itself in a single year's time right that it can have a massive right. impact on the soil in one or two or, or three years you can see changes that that you know we haven't necessarily thought about i i think over the last maybe decade or two um you know we've thought yeah. about the soil more as a a medium to plant a crop and regenerative ag really makes you think about what kind of asset that is to us it is the foundation of our yeah. system and so uh, it's that, a that's living it's asset yeah, it's a living asset and it it's a living asset that drives huge systems that go so beyond our little area. Like our, you know, we think about Eastern Washington and Idaho and the Palouse and this farming system that's kind of the Columbia Basin. But it really, what we do here affects things globally. I mean, it can't be put in a little box and isolated. It It's, it's a big deal. So I want us to look at that whole landscape of the last 20 years because you've been working in this um in your role right now at Spokane Conservation District for about two decades and like you said things have really changed when did you see this change start to happen on a bigger scale like you know this idea of regenerative agriculture this idea of reintegrating these systems that we've segregated for so long when did you see the transition point well I I personally, for me, it, it was in the last three years. Uh, it, it really has mm -hmm. been something. I, I think it's been out there in the past. I think it was kind of a side topic at times. Uh, took kind of a backseat to our our traditional systems and and thinking. Uh, but I think the the folks like John Kemp and Ray Archuleta and Gabe Brown and all those folks that that have been doing this that have seen success have been telling the story for, mm -hmm. for a lot longer than three years, right? And and they've been doing it. Yeah. And, and they're the, the pioneers in this whole regenerative ag movement. And so as you start, uh, you know, for me, I, I look back at, you know, I had a, kind of what I consider to be a life-changing year, uh, the year uh, November before COVID started. And it was really a, a series of events and meetings that we went to that Scott and I got to attend, and it started in November of what would that have been of nineteen uh, at a, mm -hmm. a Graham Sate meeting in in Canada, Calgary, 
and to to hear him mm-hmm. speak about our agriculture systems and and rebuilding the soil and then Joel Williams was there at the same meeting and he started talking about the value of the plant and the soil and and what it really can do for us and and then we progressed through and we got to see we had we had Joel come and speak and do a whole day session on on mm-hmm. advanced soil health mm-hmm. for us at the Drexel conference just 2 months later and we got to sit there and right. listen and you know what Joni, what I can tell you is my whole career was built around direct seed and no-till systems. And that day, Joel, mm-hmm. Joel Williams got up and said, I don't like no-till. That was when the first 10 wow. minutes of the conference. And I thought, oh boy, here we go. We're in front of a crowd of people of direct seed and no-tillers. And then he came back around and he said, no-till on its, on its own doesn't solve the problem. You need, it, yeah. it is one leg in the stool of, uh, of regenerative ag. I think he called it conservation agriculture, yeah. uh, kind of as a worldwide term uh, to to really rebuild soil mm-hmm. health. And that's when I started to understand yep. that he was exactly right, Joni. We have become like the light somewhat went residue off farmers. In your head, you're like, wait, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. It, I love it, that it, it was, took someone it, saying, it, "I don't like what you're doing," to kind of get you uncomfortable yeah. enough to really change the way you were thinking about things. That little pain point of discomfort, it can be really important. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And and so you you kind of add on to those. Yeah. 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 I love um, Scott's story too. And we're going to get Scott Gale, who is one of your partners that you work with with, on FarmSmart and the biofarming. But um, I think Scott can be good about kind of making people just uncomfortable enough to think outside of the box. Um, so I love how you guys kind of work as personalities alongside one another, that there is that kind of push and pull of like, Oh, let's go out on a limb a little bit. And then no, let's reel it back and make it safe again. And I think that makes it palatable. I think that you guys are a really good team in telling the story and, and kind of pulling that, that story that you just told about that conference where you have somebody stand up and go, I don't like what's going on here. And the room went silent and everybody was kind of uncomfortable for a second. I'm sure looking around at each other with that smirk, like, uh oh, what's he going to say? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it, I, I think that that's a really important part of the message. Yeah, I, I do too. I think it's, it, for me, it was really an integral piece of, of this transformation to really thinking more about our farming system as a, uh, a regenerative system where we actually can have an impact on it. and and. I don't know. You just look at, I guess, some of those changing moments in your life where I can go back and pinpoint that and say, wow, that was that was a pretty that uh, was the integral time. piece of uh, it was. It was the moment when I said, wow, we've made ourselves good residue farmers. We did an amazing job of direct seeding and no-tilling. And we always thought that if we got a bunch of people to direct seed and no-till, we would have arrived somewhere. I don't know if we would have arrived, but we would have arrived at a, a point where we'd address soil erosion. We made a good system out of it. And what we learned that day was that's one piece of a puzzle that if you're not doing that piece, mm-hmm. you will never achieve the whole. But uh, so we right. did a good thing by starting. We just didn't know the end game. And that's where it's I a great say start. that for me, it's in the last couple of years. Yeah, yeah it, it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it, it's interesting because you do look at the... Um, you know, the bigger picture, and then you start to add in the idea of animal integration and reintegration of all these different things that have been separated for so long. But when you look at the natural ecology of any of these plains ecosystems, 
undulates and animals are such key features to making those ecosystems tick. And one of the biggest things we're up against right now is this biodiversity collapse that we've li- we've separated them for so long that now we have extinctions of of like massive amounts of species that haven't even been documented yet. Like you look at the insects alone and um, the loss that has happened in the last 30 years is, is truly startling. And so I feel like there is this race to bring back um, this unification of the systems where we bring animals back onto the fields. And that kind of like revives this whole process of like bringing back seeds that are in the historical seed beds way deep that we thought were extinct. And what do you know? They come back after like decades of nobody seeing them or insects come back after decades of nobody seeing them. And it's like it re- jump starts the magical part of the process, which is it's like a nature-based solution. It's like an earth-based solution. It's an ecosystem solution. And it's hard to patent that because it's nature yeah. doing its thing. And I think that that also keeps it kind of suppressed because we've got huge systems that are in control that are all profit-driven and I'm not an anti-profit person. I run a for-profit company, but we do have to realize that the capital engine that fuels a lot of these new systems and these new ways of doing business, um, there's not as much incentive when you're telling people to go back to a nature-based solution because you can't pro- you can't patent nature. And so um, the work that you're doing at FarmSmart is really, really important because it it gives a platform for communicating the power of these nature-based solutions and these regenerating solutions and tries to get them under the banner of something that people can get behind and understand. And we're going to talk about, you know, certification here in a little bit towards the end of the show, but could you take a moment to tell the audience about what Farm Smart is and what, when it started and what you guys are trying to accomplish with Farm Smart? Yeah, you bet. So the Farm Smart program was developed, uh, as part of the Pacific Northwest Direct Seed Association. Uh, it was started, I would say now, probably approaching eight to 10 years ago was when we first started it. And it really was an effort uh, as we were working with the Washington State Department of Ecology, uh, we had, you know, really saw a need to be able to identify some of the major conservation practices that were being done on these farms and allow those farms to differentiate themselves from the rest and and so farm smart was kind of born out of that necessity we were looking for a way to uh, allow the farmers that had that truly are proactive that are out in front adopting whole farm conservation practices and programs and really help them Mm -hmm. be able to come up with a way to to set themselves apart and hopefully capitalize on either a marketing effort a regulatory advantage, mm-hmm. whatever it might be, something that that could be captured for them to to see a reason to continue to to progress yeah. and and do well on their farm. Mm-hmm. And so so that's how that program was built. And and you know the beautiful part of this journey with this program is it was built by farmers. So mm-hmm. uh, it, I love that it's a it's an attainable farmers who were program. valuing conservation already, like you know, going, Hey, we value this because either we have a something in our gut or in our soul or in our heart or in our head is like, Hey, this is really important. How do we formalize the value that's in that conservation effort? And how do we build it out and make it more, um, you know, accountable as far as like consistency across systems, like 
And so I'd love for you guys to talk about how you developed those kind of tools for documenting the processes and the practices and, you know, even the, the lab data that you guys have been able to collect in your systems. Yeah, you know, we, we use a variety of things, but the foundation of the program is still with USDA and the Natural Resource Conservation Service. Uh, we use their uh, practice standards that most of our farmers are aware of. If they have a conservation ethic, they probably have been in a conservation program. So if they think about uh, protecting resources on their farm, then they've probably been in one of those programs and are aware of some of these standards. And so we use that as the foundation of it, but we put them on a much different scale. We did it on a whole farm basis, and each one is on a rating scale, Joni, so that uh, they have mm -hmm. multiple ways of attaining certification, uh, but overall they have to reach a high standard across the whole program. So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we're really evaluating everything from water quality to air quality, uh, soil health, and wildlife habitat. Those are the major areas. Mm -hmm. We have an economic component as well that we go through mm -hmm. that is more of a, a management type questionnaire for them mm -hmm. just to make sure that, that mm -hmm. they're aware and that, that the auditors and, and the people that that look at the certification understand that these folks are at the top of their game. They're they're good managers. Right. And they're and that life is at the center of it. Life is at the center. It's like, how do we get up every morning? How do we get our farmers to get up every morning instead of going, what am I going to kill today? They get up in the morning and go, how are we going to grow more life on our farm? How are we going to make that life more dynamic? And, um, you know, touch more points so that there's like a diversity in what life means. It's not just growing one single crop and having it look green and produce the best yield. It's growing life in a more dynamic way. And I, I'd love for you to talk about the different things that your farmers do and I and, and even how it reaches into, you know, how can we have, um, you know, share our property and share our farm with people who want to come out and fish and want to come out and enjoy hunting. I know that's a controversial topic, but you can't have hunters come out if you don't have great biodiversity of waterfowl coming and, you know, and living on your property during different times of the year. So if you could talk about that a little bit, that'd be great. Yeah, I think the, you know, where, where our, the Farm Smart program hits the foundational uh, farming practices pretty well. It covers everything from, you know, good stewardship of, of the soil and, and really trying to look at, at soil health building practices, but we're looking at residue cover, leaving good residue cover year-round for wildlife habitat, uh, you know, those mm -hmm. kind of practices that, you know, we don't cut out uh, use of chemistries, but we, we ensure that it's judicious use of those chemistries, that, that, that if they're being used, mm -hmm. it's because we, we don't have alternatives for it. Uh, and and it's really, it, it's looking at precision agriculture practices, things that uh, really help us become much more efficient at using the tools that we have, uh, you know, and then, mm -hmm. you know, when we really step back and we look at that, this is a whole farm approach. So they have to attain a certain ranking, 70% score in every one of those areas. So air quality, uh, water mm -hmm. quality, if they don't achieve 70% there and 75% uh, overall, uh, they can't become certified in this. So they have to be a very proactive mm -hmm. operation. It's very attainable, right? Uh, but but it pushes them to a, a very high level on their farm. And so mm -hmm. over time, our goal for this is that the farmers do have something more to market than just 
maybe a commodity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we hope that over time right. there's a wildlife component for folks that uh, there's there's a livestock component someday on this. And, and that's one that we're working mm-hmm. on uh, now is to really look at how we could potentially integrate livestock into this uh, Farm Smart program. And and mm-hmm. and that really drives back at some That's of a those. differentiator. It is. Yeah, that's a real differentiator in the way that you guys are looking at your farming system and as a certification that it's really focused on the entire ecosystem on the farm, not just on one component, um, not just on like some soil data that's being collected. Soil data is awesome. You guys do a lot of that as well. But one of the reasons I am so passionate about the Farm Smart program is because of that bigger picture of looking at the whole ecosystem and focusing on increasing life while pulling back on dependency on things like the chemicals um, and in that, you know, you definitely create a pathway that makes it easy for your farmers, I think, to end up organic, which is fantastic. Um, but just even if they're not committed to going there, they're still dramatically reducing their dependency on chemicals. And it, I would love for you to talk about just your water program and what you guys have done and how you've really seen an increase, decrease, an overall decrease in chemical use in your system. And I think it was something crazy, like 60% just from modifying your water systems that you're mixing things with. Could you take a moment to explore that topic with us? Yeah. Yeah. You bet. I, you know, this is, uh, this is separate kind of a separate topic from farm smart, a little kind of a side note. And this Mm -hmm. is much more focused on our biofarming group at the conservation district. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is really just a tool that's out there and everybody always wishes there was a silver bullet, right? To achieve certain things on the farm or in, in their career or whatever <laughs> it is. And and in our annual cropping systems, we, we just don't, I mean, everything's been done, right? It seems like everything's been done to, to really gain high efficiency. The equipment's big, the, you know, the chemistries are good, all the things, the fertilizers are working, the seeds are, you know, they're hybrid and they're doing the best production they can. So where do we save money? You know, how do we really impact the system? And we've seen some of that technology change in our dryland regions where we have fallow ground. uh, And that came really uh, about five, six years ago with the advent of these weed it type sprayers that can go out and spray a single weed in their fallow ground instead of spraying the whole field it just sees them and sprays individual weeds and they see these 80 to 90 percent reductions in chemical use in those systems and so that was like Mm -hmm. an eye-opener moment like wow okay we found it in our in our fallow regions what do we do in these annual cropping systems as well and and scott and i were fortunate to hear uh a talk about why we aren't cleaning up our water before we're using it to put uh, our fertilizers and our chemistries in and it mm-hmm. and we hadn't really thought about it I, you know at least from our perspective this was kind of an eye-opener and i think industry-wide I, you know we don't have any of these systems around so we built one we we went out and got a small grant and the district pitched in the rest of the money needed and we built this reverse osmosis water system and with some uh some technology behind it that from the Personova company that uses some what they call water structuring tubes to change the frequency of the water. If if you can mm-hmm. go that far with me, it's a more of a physics issue, I think, mm-hmm. than it is Let's go uh, there. biological. <laughs> and and so uh and so we've built this system and, and 
you know, we're just testing it right now, but the tests that are being run within our biofarming group are, are pretty tremendous. Uh, we didn't build the system to use with chemistry. We built it to use to, to really uh, use it for the application of micronutrients and biology in our regenerative ag system. Mm -hmm. and, and that definitely makes those products much more efficient. It, it really helps the plant become much more efficient at utilizing them and getting it into the plant quicker. Uh, we've also found, though, that there is optimal, uh, you know, water hardness and things that, that need to be attained in order for some of the chemistries we're using to really be truly effective. And uh, mm -hmm. so, you know, it gets drives kind of Joni back at, we can go back to one of the things I like to talk about, which is nitrogen use efficiency in our crops. We you know, they're, they're, mm -hmm. those recommendations are built from our universities, and, and it's really widely known that those recommendations for to grow a bushel of wheat, uh, uh, say, uh, are based on a 50% efficiency. So we have to apply twice the, yep. the chemistry or the, the, the nutrients, the fertilizer, to get the benefit out of it. And, and so we go back to this water system, and it makes you think, well, how much of this have we been doing just because we're trying to address a water problem that we have. Yeah. And, and, right. you know, and so what we found, and, and John Kemp talked about this, Joni, a lot, was if your water has 150 parts per million of hardness in it or more, approximately 70% of whatever you put in it, whether it's a fertilizer or a chemistry, is tied up before it ever hits the plant. It's inactive, it mm -hmm. won't be able to be used. And so, so this system takes that variable out. Uh, we're, uh, you know, and so, so we're making our products much yeah. more efficient. So for like our listeners, at the end of the day, like the last three minutes, it, whether you understood it or not, which if you're not in farming, you may not. But I, what I want people to take away from this is that by implementing these creative solutions to, you know, real you know, agronomic problems, you know, like, okay, the farmers are like, hey, we're nitrogen's expensive right now. We can't be just throwing away 50% of every pound of nitrogen we're putting on the field. And you guys have done some out of the box thinking that have created solutions that have dramatically reduced the amount of inputs that are being put on the field. So, you know, the farmers are obviously driven by saving money. But when you think about the overall environmental impact of what you guys have done that you can look at all of your farmers over a course of time over a course of systems and say wow through this through this work we have reduced x amount percent of inputs on our fields and still have the same like production in your crops that's actually really really revolutionary on a huge on a huge scale thinking you know perspective from a huge scale uh, like from a huge perspective because you know, I've always been really passionate about organic systems, but when you, because I don't want chemicals in my waterways, I don't want chemicals flying around in the air. I'm a nurse. I see what chemicals do to people. We really should use them judiciously. Right. And then when I look at only 1% of our acreage in America is dedicated organic, it actually creates a lot more reduction in exposure to chemicals. If we figure out how to reduce chemical usage in conventional systems by 60%, we just made a much bigger impact on the world than if we perfected 1% of those farming systems in organic. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's what I want people to take away from with this. It's like, 
by we're actually making bigger strides in reducing chemical use and reducing input dependency by going regenerative and using these biofarming methods, then we could be imperfect on 1% of acreage. Yeah, I think you're right. I, we look for solutions on a much wider scale, uh, you know, and we know that with our biofarming group, our goal isn't to, to transition farmers to organic. We know that it may ultimately be the outcome if, if we succeed, Which is right? fantastic. It, is. it would be fantastic. Yes. But, but that's not a goal because mm -hmm. we still know we have issues to deal with out there. We can't just cut fertilizers and chemistry off of this, these farms right now. We still have to be productive. We still have to Overnight. be Overnight. They're chemically dependent. Yeah. It, the, They're chemically dependent, the too. The whole system is built around this. And so so we're not saying that that mm -hmm. has to change and, and even change, you know, over the long term. What we're saying right now is that we need mm -hmm. to find better solutions to addressing some of these challenges. Mm -hmm. And this is one. This water system uh, is just a, a quick, it's a piece of equipment that runs and does its job and and it builds us a clean water a more efficient water and it gives us opportunity to to rethink how we use some of these tools that we have and mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. you know when we get into the biological farming type programs that water is integral to really helping us make a healthy plant uh if we're if we mm -hmm. know we have um well, let me go back just a bit here, Joni. In our biological systems, we're doing some pretty innovative testing with the apical labs out of Oregon that really tells us oh, yeah. right, that this is kind of the foundation of, of some of the, the programs we're running with these farmers. And these tests tell us what nutrients are cycling throughout that plant, whether we're deficient or uh, we have too much uh, in a plant. Uh, and, and really that leads mm -hmm. back to the discussion about are we photosynthesizing at our maximum capability? And when we get those mm -hmm. results, it, it then we can build a recommendation on very micro or, or small amounts of nutrients that are needed in a plant. I mean, we're talking about two ounces of a product across a whole acre. It's amazing to me that with that many plants out there, that two ounces of a product can change things so dramatically mm -hmm. in a plant and it does and when we put it with this water it almost guarantees that that gets in those plants and is much more efficient and much quicker at utilizing them so so that was like the goal. less is actually more it absolutely <laughs> is and and especially when you start to look at the drivers behind like elevating levels of um, heavy metals and a lot of other things that are now becoming more and more present in the soils of our farming systems as a result of impaired rhizosphere ecology and also overuse of certain chemical inputs because we're fighting this inefficiency, um, you know, statistic, this whole, and, and what we don't, you know, often realize outside of farming systems is like the overuse of some of these inputs is actually driving um, abnormal labs in our soil that are creating toxicity issues. Um, and we can combat it using more creativity and nuance than just hitting it with force, right? Yeah. Um, and hitting it with force is clearly not working. And now we have an economic driver that is helping motivate people to like fix that problem. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the classics around here is is that we see a lot of aluminum toxicity in our plants, in our wheat mm -hmm. plants. And it, it actually can destroy full fields of wheat. It just trim, trims mm -hmm. and pairs the roots off. And, and aluminum toxicity occurs when, when we have low pH. And low pH occurs because of all the salt-based fertilizers that are being applied. 
on these mm. fields. Right. So, uh, you know, what's really interesting is that we have fields that we've tested in our biofarming group that have no pH issues. They're 5.5 to 6 or 6.2, and we're still finding aluminum issues in our plants. And, you know, and mm. so what we're seeing is that we're importing it somewhere else is is what we're we're kind of surmising right now is that it can't be soil based because it's not a ph issue uh that that plant is picking yeah, it up it's coming in from somewhere it's coming in from somewhere we're importing it and that's in a couple places right chemistries and fertilizers we don't know we don't know exactly uh-huh. but we know that plant is picking it up somewhere and we're not really sure how that mm-hmm. happens so uh, so those issues are what we can address with these micronutrient applications. We can address aluminum toxicity in a plant. Uh, you'll have to have Scott tell you how to do that because I can't, but, but, <laughs> but, but he does. And he does yeah. it with these farmers every day. Uh, with, it's amazing. It yep. Yeah. The, the health, you know, the human health impacts of this kind of work are really, really big because you know, people for the longest time, we've really focused on food and the nutritional panel. And it's kind of like, you know, what does my food do for me? Like, A, does it make my stomach stop growling? And B, does it make me fat? Like, that's literally like the American way of interacting with food. But now we're starting to realize that it's so much more complicated than that. And the soil in which your farm, your, you know, food is grown and the farming system that it's grown in starts to drive a much more complex picture of actual nutrients, like both nutrients that are helpful for your health, nutrients that are not helpful for your health, like obviously aluminum um, is harmful to the plant, but you don't want excess um, different, you know, elements in your food. I mean, like there, you know, the the studies that were done with white leaf provisions, looking at heavy metals in baby food. And they started to notice that baby food that was on the market actually had abnormally high and toxic levels of heavy metals. But the reason no one knew is no one was testing for it. And once they started sourcing their um, their their supply chain from regenerative farms, they found that the heavy metal was corrected and was not present in it. It's a very powerful lesson on the long-term effects of these farming systems that are out of balance. And right now we do have like, the, I'd say the vast majority of arable lands that are being farmed are horribly out of balance. And so it's somewhat of a race to get them back in check and get things back in balance, build that soil health again so that we have an intact ecosystem that is creating the foundation of all of our farming systems at a, at a really holistic level. So you guys are doing awesome, awesome work. And I want everybody to know about the work that you're doing in at farm smart and also with the biofarming group because, um, and Spokane conservation district, because there's just so many layers of, of um, creativity that are happening here. And I, I w- wish that we talked more about it and got these stories out into bigger, you know, um, groups of people to learn so that we can have more cross-pollination and information exchange so that we improve our systems faster and better every day. So, you know, I, I know that we've, you know, we you and I, we can always talk for hours because I, I love talking about all of these topics and they're really, really cool. But let's just before we wrap it up, talk a little bit more about certification. In the world of regenerative agriculture right now, <laughs> certification is kind of a bad word because we've got like one camp that really wants certifications. We, we want There's another camp that's like really against certifications. There's clearly a need for certifications and there's clearly need for the consumer to be educated about what a certification would mean. Has FarmSmart talked about 
you know, carrying this um, certification with your farmers out to the consumer level? I mean, I know the answer to this, but I'd like you to tell our listeners a little bit about that and about what FarmSmart is thinking about that right now. FarmSmart is, you know, one of the foundational pieces of that program was to really figure out how to connect the farmer to the consumer. Uh, You know, that getting that connection again, I mean, I don't know, what are we, three generations now removed from the farm, something two or three generations. Mm -hmm. I mean, it used to be that everybody had some connection to a farm. And today, I think we're we're two to three generations out. Nobody knows or has any any recollection of being part of a farm. And, and, and so Farm Smart really does have that that desire to take a, a program that is so uh, you know that it, it's so conservation minded and take it to the consumer, allow them the opportunity to understand what's going on, on the farm. It's a transparent system to to allow that 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 consumer to feel good about what they're buying. That that what they're getting mm-hmm. on the store shelf is is what they want it has value to it and and you know let's be honest i think there's there's so much research going on right now to figure out why the calories we provide today you know all the food is kind of the hollow calorie scenario right i mean Mm -hmm. it's it's Mm -hmm. it's why potentially we we eat so much and things and we've just lost some of the uh the the nutrient value of our food and and that comes from the soil and so this program is Mm -hmm. there to to ultimately fight to provide a better food product and we want the consumer to know that and understand it there will be and already is some marketing components going on with that program to help educate the consumer on what this means Uh, it might only that be that this is a local program over time that it's a pacific northwest program but because it's built from the farmers the ground up Right. I think that mm-hmm. to me, that's what we have to market. That's what the consumer needs to know that this is this is not a, a top down scenario. This is not a uh, a large retailer or wholesaler trying to drive a set of practices at the farm because it's what they want. This is a set of practices that right. farmers have built that said we're the stewards of our land. We know what's good for the land. We're going to be, you know, it, good stewards of that natural resource and it's going to make a better product for you mm-hmm. and therefore uh that mm-hmm. that's really what we want to see joni is just th- that yeah. connection back to them that's powerful yeah that's really powerful because right now i think you know regenerative is definitely at risk of you know huge corporations kind of um establishing what their idea of regenerative is which i mean i there is part of me that's like thank you for caring and even thinking about that, like that's admirable in its own right. However, farming really does need to be run by farmers and it should be farmer led initiatives that really move the needle and that create response in consumers, brands and in retailers, because you guys know how to run a farm. We don't yeah. <laughs> at the end of the day. Um, that is just a really key feature, but I think it's fair to have that two-way communication for like consumers and the end users to say, but we'd really like to see more of this. Like maybe these pain points are what we respond to. Like we want to see more, you know, we want to see those stats of how you guys are reducing these use of these chemicals that could be harmful to us. Like those are really meaningful uh, metrics that should be communicated to consumers and ultimately will. So I, I love the work that you have done. It's it's really, really impressive. And um, there's just so much more work to, to to be done in the future. So it's going to be a nice long-term play. We should probably do an annual update with Farm Smart. 
on this podcast because I don't expect this podcast to be going away anytime soon because there's just so much to talk about when you look at food, farming, health, and economics and how it all comes together um, and meets really in the soil of the fields. And um, it's really great. So, um, you know, the world's kind of weird right now. (laughs) I think everybody's feeling a little bit uneasy with global supply chains, food insecurity. I mean, I look around and I know everyone's worried about wheat and I take a drive to Tri-Cities and I'm like surrounded by wheat. It just doesn't seem that scarce to me. But then again, we live in the wheat belt and I want to be sensitive to people who are dependent on importation of wheat into areas that are, you know, stricken with desertification or have just too many people and too little landmass to to deal with that. But, you know, in, in light of that, I mean, are you feeling good about our wheat production this year? Just a quick note to kind of get us into the relevance of where we're at in this day and yeah, age. You know, it it's really is a tale of two years. I mean, last year we went through probably one of the worst droughts we've had in, in I, I don't know, 50 years probably. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. crops were planted in the spring last year in the end of March and never saw rain again. And, you know, that's yeah. unheard of. I mean, and, and it, it the, the farm suffered. We had some pretty serious uh, yield reductions and things. And then you get to this year and uh, there's farmers that just finished planting spring crops because it's so wet. And, uh, you mm-hmm. know, it's just been rainstorm after rainstorm. And so uh, you never knock a rainstorm. I mean, we'll take them, every one of them, right? And so what, what it's looking yeah. like this year, it looks right. amazing. I mean, the the winter wheat mm-hmm. crops that were seeded last fall, they just need some heat now. Uh, the crop looks beautiful yeah. out there. They need to dry out. They, they need a, they need some some growing degree days, and 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 we're getting mm-hmm. them, and and it just looks amazing. Uh, two years ago, we had one of the biggest crops we've ever had in this region, and it was really I would say this year shaping up a lot like it in in terms of the weather and the moisture we're getting, and Good. so I. You know, it's a great turnaround. Uh, you wouldn't want to see a big drought like that happen two years in a row. And we've seen it in other areas, oh, right? Gosh. Um, but, yeah. But yeah. I, you know, we're going to have a big crop unless we have something serious happen in the next 30 days, you know. and, and Well, so, we will knock on yeah. wood that that does not happen yeah. because, boy, every time I look at like the, the ag news newsletters that end up in my inbox and it's like flooding in Australia and like, you know, we know what's happening in the South yeah. and it, it's just it's just scary out there. So I'm really excited to hear that things are going well. Mother nature is giving us the right combination of factors to produce food that we're going to need to help feed the world through this entire crisis, everything happening in Ukraine too. Um, I, it just makes me feel hopeful and I'm, I'm so glad you guys are doing the work you are doing to make these farming systems resilient and sustainable and ultimately doing their best work to foster life in our region. So Thanks for the work you yeah, do. Thank you, Joni. Uh, and, and I'll just make one more comment. I, you know, in terms of food security, the work you're doing to bring local food to people is really an integral piece of this. Because, uh, like I said at the thank beginning, we, we're used to exporting a lot of our food commodities. And so we're entering a time where, regardless of whether we're growing it out here, we need local producers. We need to grow, use mm-hmm. some of our own products on our own store shelves and in our own homes. Yes, we and, do. And so the work you're doing is vital to that. Uh, just love the Thank partnership you. with you on Farm Smart. And so I uh, appreciate the yep. opportunity. Yeah, as we rethink this whole food system and the role that grains and legumes both play in 
creating a resilient long-term model for feeding humanity, it, you know, we really have to rethink all the levels of it to really do it right. And that's where we apply that regenerative by design thinking process to think about how our kids will have a better situation than we did. Um, I, I'm just sticking with that. That's a tough one to stick with and be hopeful about, but that's what gets me working these 12 hour days, working as hard as I do to try to make sure I'm leaving my kids with as good of a situation as we can moving forward into um, future generations. So tight. Thanks for taking the time and um, great seeing you. Take great. care. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Regenerative by Design podcast. If you would like to learn more about the principles of regenerative food systems and agriculture, please see the show notes for links to education, a glossary, and guest information. This podcast was brought to you by Snacktivist Inc., a leader in the regenerative food industry. We create delicious foods from regenerative ingredients that are soil-focused, minimize water use, and maximize carbon sequestration, all while radically impacting human nutrition. Learn more about our work at snacktivistfoods.com.